36, I want you to remember, as we've been studying along, or maybe bring you up to speed if you haven't been with us, um, Jacob has 12 sons, and they've all been in Egypt looking for food. And when they get there, uh, they find uh, that their brother is now not only in Egypt, as they knew he was in Egypt, they sold him into slavery in Egypt, but now he's become the governor, uh, basically uh, the second in command over all of Egypt. And in the famine, they become this world power because they have, when no one else does, they have bread. And while we might not think that bread is something, we kind of take it for granted that we're always going to have it, seems to be that in this famine, when they don't have bread, everything else becomes kind of second priority. And, and what happens is that Joseph meets his brothers twice. He finds out after testing them that they have changed. Since they sold him into slavery, they have changed. And now they're actually valuing the life of their siblings, and they're taking care of their brother, their younger brother, Benjamin. And so Joseph decides to reveal who he is to his brothers. They didn't recognize him. He looked like Pharaoh. He had the eye makeup on, and he had the the clothing of an Egyptian. He was even speaking, I assume, Egyptian because he had been taught that, and he was speaking through a translator. That's why they didn't even recognize his voice. And so in chapter 45, we found that at the very end Jacob or excuse me Joseph had sent uh, Joseph had sent his brothers back to the land of Canaan to get their father and he sent carts to carry them back he sent food he sent gifts so that they would know that this is Joseph requesting his presence because Joseph wants to not only see his father that he hasn't seen for over 13 years since he was suddenly taken from them but also um, he wants to bring them into Egypt so that they can stay alive. There's no food. They're going to have to keep coming back and forth. And so he says, I know there's going to be a few more years of this. You may as well come and live with me. I'll take care of you. I'll be your salvation, as it were. And then um, you will be able to maintain life. And so in chapter 46, we begin this week with the calling that Jacob now has is to go into Egypt. And if you know the family history here, this would cause there to be some apprehension because Abraham went to Egypt and he was not supposed to, but it was also during a famine in Genesis in chapter 15, uh, I think it's chapter 15. Uh, it's 130 years since Jacob was born And he's called by God to leave the promised land, the land that God promised to him. And what's interesting is I think about that and I ponder these verses. How many of you are stuck in your ways? I know I'm stuck in my ways at 38, but can you imagine being 130 years old? Okay, go ahead and say no. I can't imagine that. But but what I would say is that we kind of, as we get older, we become more kind of firm and, well, this is just how things are done. Can you imagine at 130 years old, Jacob is told to go a place that in his family history was a terrible place to go. And so Abraham, his father, in Genesis chapter 12, verse 10, got into trouble when he went to Egypt because he goes to Egypt, there's a famine, and then he tells his wife, why don't you just 
tell the Pharaoh and anybody that asks that you're my sister and not my wife. Because you're so good looking, they're going to kill me so they can marry you. And so uh, she does this. She gets taken into the harem of the Pharaoh himself. So apparently she was very good looking. And then he finds out through another means, God has to speak to, Ab- to the Pharaoh and say, hey, you've got another man's wife. He, God protects the, um, Abraham's wife. And then they leave Egypt, and God blesses them anyway. But what they leave with is Hagar, who later down the line becomes a problem in their family because they produce this son through Hagar, uh, Sarah's servant, And to this day, we see the battle that goes on between Ishmael and Isaac. So there was long-lasting consequences. So Jacob very easily would say, well, maybe this isn't a good idea for me to go down to Egypt. But then in Genesis chapter 26, verse 2, God actually stopped Abraham's son Isaac from going into Egypt. He said, you shall not go there. And so now Jacob is faced with this opportunity to go see his son but he's got to be wondering, is this really the best? Should I actually go there? He's unsure of what to do. So in chapter one, uh, excuse me, chapter 46, verse 1 through 4, he stops. He stops to find out what is the direction, what is the will of the Lord here? So in verse 1 it says, Israel took his journey with all that he had. He came to Beersheba and he offered sacrifices to the God of his father Isaac. So after worshiping, it says here that, the, that God spoke to Israel in the visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And Jacob says, here I am, Lord. So he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not fear to go to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. Now, they're going to go into Egypt as a family, and they're going to come out of Egypt as a nation. And so he he gets a direct word from the Lord. Go to Egypt, don't be afraid to go there, and I will make you a great nation. I will go down with you to Egypt, God says, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will put his hand on your eyes. And so Jacob finds himself in a spot where he doesn't know what to do. And so when he doesn't know what to do, rather than just coming up with a scheme, which is what he typically did all of the 130 years previous, he's finally broken down to the point where he realizes the best thing to do is to wait upon the Lord, to get specific direction from him. He's unsure of what to do, so he waits upon the Lord. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31, it says, "'Those who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength.'" They shall mount on up on wings like eagles, and they shall soar. And I don't know about you guys, but if I could have a superpower, I think it would be flight. And the perspective that's given from flight is just amazing. And if you don't think that's the case, that's how reconnaissance happens in the military. They take a plane and they fly over and they use these awesome telescopes and they can see things that we wish they couldn't see. And the government has satellites. And if you don't think that being up high above things gives perspective, then why did we invent drones? 
Why do we look at all this footage? Go on YouTube and find drone footage over these amazing places and you see how vast and how amazing and how creative that God is. And so all that to say, the, the proper perspective that Jacob needs is not to ask more people that can see from the same level he can. He needs advice, he needs wisdom from the God who sees it all in one viewing. And so he waits upon the Lord, and the Lord speaks very directly, and he says, no, don't be afraid to go down there. I know that Abraham shouldn't have gone there. I know that Isaac was told not to go there, but in your generation, this is going to be the way that I'm going to save you. I'm going to take you into the world, and I'm going to save you through it. So it's very important and this is my conclusion that I get from these four verses, it's very important that we're led by God's spirit, not by past experiences. We were just talking this morning in, uh, in the prayer room, and Beth Warren mentioned the fact that uh, so many times it's easy to go, no, I've tried that before, it won't work. I will never do that again. And no doubt, there's some obvious things that we know will not work. Um, but... I think that Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5 and 6 speaks very directly to this. It says, trust in the Lord with all your understanding. Don't, le- don't lean on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge the Lord and he will make your paths straight. And so Jacob has matured vastly in his lifetime, and now he's going to go a place that he's uncomfortable, but who said that God's will is always comfortable for us? And so in verse 5, we see Jacob Now he's spent time at the altar, and so, preacher joke, he's been altered. He's been changed by this time with the Lord, and he's now going to take his family with him. And if there's one thing that you can offer your family that every single one of us can do, is we can spend time worshiping the Lord, we can let him alter us, and then we can take our families with us. And so, in chapter 46, verse 5 through 27, (laughs) that's a good song. In chapter 46, verse 5 through 27, we see that God changes Jacob so Jacob can take his family with him, take him to the place that God's called them to be. And I don't care how dangerous the spot is or how unreasonable it seems when God calls you to a place, he's going to protect you there. He's going to take care of not only you, but he's going to take care of your family there because he takes full ownership. If he leads you somewhere, he's considered all the angles, more than you can possibly think of. And so verse 5 says, Then Jacob arose from Beersheba. Beersheba was the well of the oath, if you remember, where Abraham had spent time with the Lord there and had been spoken to by the Lord and given direction for his circumstances. And it says, And the sons of Israel carried their father Jacob, their little ones, and their wives in the carts which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. So they took their livestock and their goods, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and they went to Egypt, Jacob and all his descendants with him. What's interesting is it doesn't say that he took some of his stuff. It says that he took all. When God calls us to follow him into the unknown, he says, take everything with you. Don't hedge your bets. If God calls you to go someplace, 
Go all in or don't go. And, and I believe that he rewards that. It takes faith to go where God calls us to go. And so verse 7, it says, His sons and his son's sons, his daughters and his son's daughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now, I'm not going to read through every verse here, but verse 8 through 15, we see that Leah has 33 descendants. We see that Zilpah, the servant, she has 16 descendants. Rachel has 14 descendants. I put Bilboa. Autocorrect got me there. Bilha is what it's supposed to say. <laughs> Just seeing if you guys were paying attention. Apparently I was not. Um, Bilha had seven descendants. And then verse 26 through 27, it says there that 70 members of Jacob's family go into Egypt. Now, if you read in other places, it says that 75 went. Now, there's a discrepancy there, right? So the Bible, it, it doesn't always agree with itself. I would say that in this case, it doesn't count Joseph and his sons and their descendants because they were already in Egypt. But in the other places where it mentions it, it says 75 because it includes them. So <clears throat> they go in as a family. They'll later come out as a nation, according to verse 3. Now, Jacob's family will be also altered by the trials that they experience in Egypt. If you, if you know how this story continues, um, they go in, God uses the bread in the land to save them, and then over time, the leadership changes. They don't know why Joseph was brought there in the first place. They just know that the people of Israel multiply very quickly, and they become more powerful than the Egyptians, and so they enslave the Israelites. But Jacob's family in the, in the long run will be altered by trials in Egypt over the long run. And so I have there for you First Peter. First Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Peter, the apostle, he goes off in this moment of praise and he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's begotten us to an inheritance that's incorruptible and undefiled and that does not fade away and is reserved for us in heaven. <clears throat> It's reserved for us who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. See, they're temporarily being saved in Egypt. This inheritance, if it's the one God has for them, it's corruptible. Over time, it's going to change. But in this, Peter says, you greatly rejoice. Though now, for a little while, if you need be, you have been grieved by various trials so that the genuineness of your faith, which is really more precious than gold or silver that perishes, though it's tested by fire, it may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love, though now you do not see him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. And then you receive the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. 
And so trials for the believer are actually meant to change us and actually purify our lives. God means good when he allows them. And so now they're in Egypt, and he's taken his whole family. And you can read through the names. You can butcher them on your own in your own time. But then in verse 28... It says, then, then he sent Judah before him to Joseph. Uh, Judah is one of the older brothers. He sent him before him to Joseph to point out before him the way to a place called Goshen. And they went to the land of Goshen. So Joseph made ready his chariot, and he went up to Goshen to meet his father Israel. And he presented himself to him, and he fell on his neck, and he wept on his neck for a good while. Now remember, Joseph hasn't seen his own father for 13 years, and it's not because he didn't like his father. Uh, many times we hear the story of the prodigal son, and people, and sons and daughters, they will leave their family for a time because they can't stand being under the thumb of their authority. But in this case, Joseph did not choose to leave his father He was sold into slavery, and so at the last moment, he didn't have time to say goodbye. Can you imagine the brokenheartedness over the course of 13 years? And now that he sees his father for the first time, he can't do anything but just put his arms around him and weep. We can deal with the logistics of the move later, Dad. I missed you. And I cannot imagine the healing that happened And Jacob's heart, having thought that his own son wasn't sold into slavery, but actually dead, gone forever, never to see him again. And so he weeped on his neck for a good while. How long's a good while? As long as his father would probably let him hang on there, he probably stayed. But Judah went ahead, and they were going to this land called Goshen. Now, Goshen was not in Egypt proper. It was probably like, uh, you know, and it, was, it was on the other side of the tracks. It was, it was the place where all their fields were. It was the industrial park. Except in their industrial park, it wasn't a bunch of concrete and smog. It was actually fields for growing. And I believe it was actually in the delta of the Nile that led down to the Mediterranean Sea. That was the place most well-known for good soil for growing. And that's why Egypt was called the breadbasket. It was where all the soil was the best for growing crops. And so Israel, verse 30, said to Joseph, Now let me die since I've seen your face. Uh, if, if If Jacob had a bucket list, it was not that he wanted to experience all the world had to offer. It wasn't that he wanted to go bungee jumping over you know, the, the biggest falls in Africa. It wasn't that he wanted to jump out of a plane or get to see all seven continents or you know, buy a drone, or whatever your thing is. The bucket list that Jacob had is he just he wanted to see his son again. And that would be quite the bucket list. That would seem impossible if you thought that your son was dead. But God does the impossible. He takes what we think is dead, and he presents it back to us fully alive. And so he says, now let me die since I've seen your face. My bucket list is completely checked off. I can go in peace now. He says, since I've seen your face because you are still alive. So then Joseph said to his brothers, 
into his father's household, I will go up and tell Pharaoh and say to him, My brothers and those of my father's house who are in the land of Canaan have come to me. And the men are shepherds, for their occupation has been to feed livestock, and they have brought their flocks, their herds, and all that they have. So it shall be when Pharaoh calls you and says, What is your occupation? Here's what you should say. He's coaching them. He's coaching them. He says, when you see the Pharaoh and he asks what you do, don't make something up. Don't pretend to be like them. Tell Pharaoh exactly what it is you have done with your whole life. He says, you shall say your servant's occupation has been with livestock from our youth even till now both we and also our fathers, that you may dwell in the land of Goshen. The main goal of telling them who they really are is so that they can live in the land that will be best for what they do. But what we're going to find out is Joseph, having lived in Egypt a good portion of his life now, wants to spare his brothers from the temptation of living in this worldly city. He says, you guys should remain country bumpkins. You should stay out of the city limits. I don't want you to be tempted with what I'm tempted with daily. He says, for every shepherd is an abomination to the Egyptians. Have you ever felt like because of your family name or your occupation or because what you do with your time or what your name is associated with or because of what you like to do, you're looked down on and you're not allowed into certain areas of society? Maybe you don't. Maybe that's not your experience at all. Maybe something you've done in the past, some way you've treated somebody, some sin that everybody knows about and you wish they didn't, and so you're not allowed into a certain area. Joseph tells his brothers, you are shepherds. So when Pharaoh asks you what you are, say, we are shepherds. Now, the, the, the world you've just moved into thinks that shepherds are an abomination. They despise you. They despise everything that you're about. But even though that's the case, tell them who you are anyway. And guess what? When you tell them who you are and they despise you, they're going to put you in the perfect land for what you do. So God's going to use what the world despises about you to put you in green pastures. And he's going to use it for your good to keep you away from temptation. Maybe you don't need to be where you want to be. And God's using what the world despises to put you exactly where he wants you to be so that you can grow, so that you can be who he's called you to be. And so Joseph reunited with his father, Joseph's advice to his family, tell them who you are. Don't be ashamed of it. And I would tell you as believers, if you are in Christ and that causes you to believe things that the world despises, the world might even say what you believe is an abomination to them. Be okay with that. Wear that badge with honor because God's using that badge, that identity to put you exactly where he wants you. He wants you to be in green pastures. He wants to keep you from temptation. Why? 
because he's the good shepherd. And maybe what you're longing for on the other side of the fence that you hate, that your identity is keeping you from, is not good for you. (laughs) Maybe you need to stop trying to nibble the green grass on the other side of the fence and be content with what your shepherd has for you. And so Joseph encouraged them so they could use their skills, but also so they wouldn't be tempted by the lifestyle of Egypt. So chapter 47, verse 1. Then Joseph went and he told Pharaoh and and said, My father and my brothers, their flocks and their herds and all that they possess have come from the land of Canaan. And indeed, they're in the land of Goshen. And he took five men from among his brothers and he presented them before Pharaoh. Can you imagine the conversation? Don't embarrass me. This is my boss. So then Pharaoh said to his brothers, what is your occupation? So now they get the opportunity to to obey Joseph or do whatever they want. But they heeded the wisdom of Joseph and says, they said to Pharaoh, your servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. And they said to Pharaoh, we've come to dwell in the land because your servants have no pasture for their flocks, for the famine is severe in the land of Canaan. Now, therefore, please let your servants dwell in the land of Goshen. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, saying, Your father and your brothers have come to you. That's interesting. They didn't come to Pharaoh. They came under the protection of Joseph. The land of Egypt is before you. Have your father and your brothers dwell in the best of the land. Let them dwell in the land of Goshen. And if you know any competent men among them, Make them chief herdsmen over my livestock. So Joseph brought in his father, Jacob, and set him before Pharaoh. And notice this, Jacob blessed Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Jacob, how old are you? Jacob said to Pharaoh, the days of the years of my pilgrimage are 130. Few and evil have been the days of the years of my life. And they've not attained to the days of the years of the life of my fathers and the days of their pilgrimage. So Jacob blessed Pharaoh, and he went out from before Pharaoh. And Joseph situated his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land and the land of Ramses, as Pharaoh had commanded. Then Joseph provided his father, his brothers, and all his father's household with bread according to the number in their families. So Jacob and five sons go before Pharaoh. Joseph gets his family settled. It says they even took possession in Egypt. So they weren't just dwelling there. They were actually given land. And then Jacob blesses Pharaoh, which is interesting because when he blesses Pharaoh, he's fulfilling what God promised to Abraham what God promised to Isaac, and what God promised to Jacob. He then blesses Joseph and his sons in chapter 48, verse 15 and 20. And then he blesses his own sons in chapter 49. So should we be surprised that Jacob actually gets to be in the presence of Pharaoh, who we may not think that much of it, but he was kind of a big deal. He gets to be in the presence of Pharaoh, which his own people thought that Pharaoh was a god himself. 
And yet when Jacob gets before Pharaoh, who is being a blessing to Jacob, he in turn blesses Pharaoh. And I want to turn back because I think it's important to look back on what God has said in the past and to celebrate the evidence of his faithfulness in the future. So in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3, God made a promise. He made a promise to Abram. He said to Abram, I want you to get out of your country, from your family and from your father's house, to a land that I'll show you. And if you remember, we've studied, Abram did that. He hiccuped along the way, but he obeyed. Verse 2, he says, I will make you a great nation. Not yet completely fulfilled, but we're seeing that it's getting there. I will bless you. And we see the evidence of God's blessing on Abram's family. And I will make your name to be great. And you shall be a blessing. He says, I will bless those who bless you. I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, we're not just talking about a passive, they're going to be blessed because we're there. But also, Jacob, when given the opportunity, he blesses, he prays for Pharaoh. Now, what's interesting about this is that if you study Psalm 23, it says in there that those who trust the Lord, goodness and mercy shall follow them all the days of their life. Now, maybe some of you aren't farmers. Maybe some of you are. So hopefully I'll teach this correctly. But what I understand about sheep is that they can be the biggest curse on a property, a piece of land. They can also be the biggest blessing of any animal on a piece of land. But what matters, what makes them a blessing or a curse where they feed and live and defecate, what makes them a blessing or a curse really has to do with their shepherd more than them. Because they have the potential to be an amazing blessing to a piece of land. And they also have the potential to absolutely wreak havoc on a piece of land. And so what's going to happen is not only is Jacob going to bless the Pharaoh, but also the sheep that they herd and the people that live there will be a blessing in the land while they are there. Goodness and mercy will follow Jacob's family while they're there. They're going to multiply. They're going to be fruitful. They're going to have plenty to eat. And the land when they leave it is actually going to be really great for crops. And so here they are a blessing while they're in this place that God's taken them to. And a testimony to Pharaoh himself that the God of Jacob is real, that he's alive, and that he actually cares about Pharaoh. Have you ever considered that? That God cares about the people that we consider to be the least likely to be blessed, the most wicked in the world. And so verse 13 goes on. Says, now there was no bread in all the land, for the famine was very severe, so that the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan languished because of the famine. And Joseph gathered up all the money that was found in the land of Egypt and in the land of Canaan for the grain which they bought. And Joseph brought the money into Pharaoh's house. So when the money failed, in other words, it ran out in the land of Egypt and the land of Canaan, All the Egyptians came to Joseph and said, 
Give us bread. We're out of money. Why should we die in your presence? For the money has failed. Joseph said, give your livestock and I will give you bread for your livestock. So they brought their livestock to Joseph and Joseph gave them bread in exchange for the horses, the flocks, the cattle of the herds and for the donkeys. Thus he fed them with bread in exchange for all their livestock that year. Now, we have plenty of bread, but we don't have that much wood. And there's some other things that are becoming kind of scant. Can you imagine, if you will, that it became so expensive to buy wood that we all of a sudden had to give stuff away? But when that year ended, they came to him the next year and said, we can't hide from you that the Lord... Will not hide from my Lord that our money is gone. And, and also, he has our herds of livestock. There's nothing left in the sight of my Lord but our bodies and our lands. Why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Buy us and our land for bread, and we and our land will be servants of Pharaoh. Give us seed that we may live and not die, that the land may not be desolate. And so... He's offering them, they're offering him uh, not only their land, but their bodies in exchange for bread. And then they offer all of this up so that they can plant crops. See, they don't have enough wheat to make food, but they definitely don't have any wheat to plant new crops. And so Joseph bought all the land of Egypt for Pharaoh, for every man of the Egyptians sold his field because the famine was severe upon them. So the land became Pharaoh's. Dave, can you get me a cup of water? I don't want you guys to have to suffer through my raspy voice any longer. So they're out of livestock, so they sell their inheritance and their life for bread. Have you ever considered how valuable that bread is? I mean, we take it for granted because we have it available to us. But in the case where we run out of bread, what would we do? How would we gain it? Bread is probably one of the most valuable things apart from water, which is interesting to me because uh, we need it to stay alive. And yet when Jesus explained who he was in John chapter 6, I'm going to turn there. um, He spoke to a society that probably understood the value of bread better than we do because perhaps they had experienced famines before. But in John chapter 6, in verse 22, Jesus is preaching to the crowds. And it says there, when the people were standing on the other side of the sea, they saw that there was no boat there. And then later he accuses them. He says, you guys aren't following me around in the wilderness because in me you think there's life. You're following me because there's bread. You're following me because I can feed you. You've already eaten the bread that I've given. And yet, they said to him in verse 34 of the same chapter, Lord, give us this bread always. And in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread. Now, this might be confusing, but what he's saying is, you think you need bread to stay alive. 
But there are people all over the world that experience famine. And Jesus claims that he is the way, the truth, and the life. So he says, I am the bread of the life. And he who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. So how do we explain that believers all over the world, even today, are experiencing hunger? He wasn't saying that we would never experience hunger. What he was saying is, if you partake of me, then even if you experience hunger, even if you die having not enough to eat, then you will live forever because you've partaken of the one true loaf of bread. Bread has always been about Jesus. Jesus isn't about the bread. He's the provider of bread, but it's about him. And so he says, He who believes in me shall never hunger or thirst. And so all of that to say, God sometimes allows there to be hunger so that people will need what he has to offer. But if you notice, I don't think Joseph would have been the best politician in his day because he sets up a 20% tax on all the increase that comes from Pharaoh's fields. He says, from now on, there will always be no graduated tax. It's straight across the board. 20% of the increase from my fields goes into Pharaoh's storehouses. And so I don't think many of us would have voted for that guy. So back in Genesis, it says there, verse 24, it shall come to pass in the harvest that you should give one-fifth to Pharaoh. Four-fifths shall be your own as seed for the field and for your food, for those of your households and as food for your little ones. So they said, you have saved our lives. Let us find favor in the sight of my Lord, and we will be Pharaoh's servants. So Joseph made it a law over the land of Egypt to this day that Pharaoh should have one-fifth except for the land of the priests only, which did not become Pharaoh's. So Israel dwelt in the land of Egypt, in the country of Goshen. And they had possessions there, and they grew and they multiplied exceedingly. And Joseph lived in the land of Egypt 17 years. So while they're in Goshen, not only did the crops multiply, but then the Israelites multiply. While everyone else was mortgaging their livestock, their land, and even themselves, Jacob's people keep their possessions, and it says that they multiply. This is directly there for contrast. The world is perishing. The world is mortgaging. The world is losing money financially and status. And yet God's people are being sustained, but they're not just surviving. It says that they're actually thriving. They keep their possessions and they multiply. God's word to Jacob is being fulfilled from chapter 46, verse 3. God's word to Abraham is being fulfilled from Genesis in chapter 15, verse 13 through 16. And you might say, what are you talking about? Well, God told Abraham that his people would live for a time over a king and in a land that was not their own. And in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 13, we see this. Genesis 15 verse 13 God said to Abram, Know certainly that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, 
and they will serve them, and the people of that land will afflict them for 400 years. Now, so far in Abraham's family history, that's never happened. And also the nation whom they serve, I will judge. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. Sound like the book of Exodus? Now as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You, you shall be buried at a good old age. But in the fourth generation, things are going to change. So I would say, no matter where God has planted you, whether you would have chosen the circumstances or not, he has plans to grow you while he has you there. So as we close up the chapter, verse 28, Jacob lived in the land of Egypt 17 years, so the length of Jacob's life was 147 years. And When the time drew near that Israel must die, he called his son Joseph and said to him, I have a... If I found favor in your sight, Joseph, please put your hand under my thigh and deal kindly and truly with me. Please do not bury me in Egypt. But let me die with my fathers. You shall carry me out of Egypt and bear me in their burial place. And he said, I will do as you have said. Joseph answers favorably. And he said, swear to me. And so Joseph swore to his father, and so Israel bowed himself on the head of the bed. He humbled himself before his own sons. And so he dwelled in Goshen the rest of his life. He never got to go back to the land God promised him. And, and that might have broken his heart, I don't know. But Joseph, he tells him, please don't bury me here. I, I'm in this land, but I'm a stranger here. I want to go be buried in the land that God called me to by faith. He knew that God protected him through Egypt, but he also knew that Egypt wasn't his home. And I would say to us as believers, we have to recognize that we are in a land that God has called us to live temporarily. We are temporary sojourners here. We become very comfortable here, but God's called us to live here, but recognize that our true citizenship is somewhere else that we've not yet apprehended. We've not yet obtained. Notice that Jacob wants to be buried in a land that's actually not his yet. They own a small swatch of property, but God said it's going to be his. And so Jacob says, I believe it, even though it's not fully fulfilled yet. Now, Jacob also desired to be buried in the land that God promised him because his fathers, who also went and dwelled there by faith, were buried there. This is a, what I would call a good family tradition. There are some that are not so great, but a faith-filled family tradition is one that I think we should set up for our kids so they'll have a pattern to live after. They may not, but to set the pattern, to set the tone, to lead. One thing Jacob desired more than anything, I believe, is the, not just to be in the land, but he desired to be in the land because that's where the Lord spoke to him. Before he left the land, God spoke to him, you can go down to Egypt, but I'm going to bring you back out. Go down to Egypt, don't be afraid. And I think there was a lot of peace given to Jacob because of that specific word to him. And what I want to point out about Jacob, if you've been here through the length of Jacob's life, Jacob is a perfect example of how God's grace does things. Not how Jacob does things,
but how God does things. Because Jacob, we could spend tons of time, and we already have, looking at all his obvious flaws, his obvious hiccups, his obvious sin, his obvious scheming, trying to get God's will done, but Jacob's way. And yet what I would say, looking at his life, there's tons of mistakes, there's tons of sin, but I respect a man that ends well despite all that. He ended very well. And if when we get to there eventually in the lives of many of the kings, in the lives of the many of the leaders in Israel, many of them have these faith-filled lives that end terribly. But here we have Jacob, who is much like Samson, actually. If you look at the lives of Samson, he, he had a terrible life in a lot of ways, but he ended well. So I want to end with Psalm chapter 27 to look at the prayer of David. Psalm 27, starting in verse 1. This is David's declaration of faith. It says, The Lord is my light, and he is my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and my foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. This one thing I have desired of the Lord, and that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion, in the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me, he shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me, therefore I will offer sacrifices of joy In his presence, I will sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said to seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. When my father and my mother forsake me, Then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. He says, I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He says, Therefore, wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. And he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, upon the Lord. So I wanted to point out verse 4 to you because it all started. The the end of that, that song is beautiful, but it all started one thing that I've desired. And if I could say anything, Jacob, at the end of his life, the one thing he desired and the one thing he sought after 
is that he wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. And even in death, he wanted to be the pla- in the place where he had fellowship with God. Whether it was Beersheba, whether it was in the land of Canaan, he wanted to dwell in the house of the Lord. And I, he wasn't talking about a church building. He was talking about God's presence. What can I do in my life to maintain fellowship with God? Whether it's dealing with sin, uh, confessing my own failings, and then conversing with the Lord and asking for daily direction. That is the house of the Lord. Lord, where do you want me to go today? What's your plan for my family? How can I lead them well, even if they won't follow? What legacy can I leave behind? Jacob left behind in his last words, I want to be in the land that God gave us. I want to obtain the inheritance that God's promised to me. God has promised you and I in Christ an inheritance that's incorruptible that no man can take from us. And I think, unfortunately, we spend most of our time trying to leave behind that legacy of a financial statement or some sort of provision or success. And while those things aren't wicked in and of themselves, our desire is that our family, hopefully our desire is that our family would follow in our footsteps of desiring to be in God's presence more than anything else. So, Father, thank you for Jacob's example. And there are certain chapters where I don't know what in the world I'm supposed to take away. But in this chapter, in these two chapters, what I see is your faithfulness and Jacob's submissiveness. And so, Father, we confess, we recognize that you are faithful. And we ask, Lord, that you give us hearts. I ask, Lord, that you give me a heart that's willing to surrender all to you, to go all in, to let you have your way, and whether I understand it or not, to accept that, that you have my best interest in mind and that you can be trusted with everything. He who began a good work in us will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Lord, may we be those who know him who we've trusted and be convinced fully that he is able to keep that which we've entrusted into him until the day of Christ Jesus. So Lord, we give it to you. Help us give it to you. In Jesus' name, amen.